to Matthew chapter 20. Weeks since we've been in Matthew. And here we get closer and closer to the pinnacle of Christ's service and His obedience to the Father, laying down His life for our sins and rising again from the dead. And so with that, we have the third and final prediction to the disciples from our Lord of His trial and sacrifice. So, this is the Word of God. Verses 17 through 28 will be read, but today we're going to go through 17 through 23. This is God's Word to us, His church, His bride, today. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, He took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way He said to them, See, or behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and He will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to Him with her sons, kneeling before Him, and she asked Him for something. And He said to her, What do you want? She said to Him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and the other on your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink of my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is those, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father." And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom. For many. Please pray with me. Oh, Father, we, we come before you, and this text is, is glorious and difficult to understand. And Lord, I must trust God, and we must trust today that, that you've, um, you're going to speak to us through your word. And I pray, God, that you would help me to, to do my, my job, which is to exalt Jesus Christ in the pulpit. I pray that you would help, that clarity would come, God. Where I am unclear, your spirit would make it clear that you would guide us in all of our knowledge. At the end of the day, God, we would, we would understand the suffering and death of Jesus Christ and realize, God, that we are united to him by grace through faith. God, please, take these few pieces of bread, God, and divide them and make them sufficient for the gathered people today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we look at this text, we see the strong theme of preparation. And we know in our earthly and human context how important preparation is 
almost every sphere of life that we encounter. Whether we're talking about the most extreme times that a nation or a society would go through, such as warfare, a people need to be trained up. Officers and military need to be trained up in the ways of war so that when they meet the event that comes to take place, they are not overwhelmed by what happens there. But we even see it in the smallest parts of our life, don't we? We have to prepare our children even. Today, before we come to worship and sit down in our chairs, we have to talk to them and most of us are saying, okay, we're about to come into the sanctuary and sit down. Prepare yourself to attempt to be quiet for the time that we're together. Preparation is important for every part of life, but it's far more important, far more weighty what the disciples are about to face as their Savior and our Savior go up to Jerusalem. And Jesus Christ prepares them here for something that they do not understand and they do not comprehend. Jesus prepares us and them for His crucifixion. He prepares them for service in the church by correcting our misunderstandings concerning Himself. The two main things that flow through this text is one, Jesus Christ revealing to His disciples the reason why He came to this earth, the pinnacle of His crucifixion, what would take place there on one side, and on the other side, the total inability of the disciples to understand what's going on. To understand what's going on. And so, the purpose of our text here today that will frame our sermon is that we would serve one another. The disciples at us, we would serve one another knowing Christ's service. And that we would serve one another knowing our union with Christ. To say that another way, Christian service that we are called to do is rooted in knowing Christ's service. We must know intimately what Jesus Christ did for us. So, the question that immediately comes is how does Christ reveal His own suffering and death? How does Christ reveal His service for His people in this text? Well, I want us to notice first in verses 17-19 through 19, that Christ reveals His suffering, His betrayal, and His condemnation. And as we see this, We have to put ourselves in the larger context of Matthew. We are coming closer and closer again to the time when our Savior is going to be delivered up to the council of the Pharisees and Sadducees and be crucified. This, in verses 17 through 19, constitutes the third time that Jesus Christ Himself warns and predicts to His disciples what is going to happen. Turn with me if you're in the book of Matthew, to chapter 16, we saw this great change and shift in our Savior's teaching to the disciples in verse 21. Through most of the book, He was teaching about the kingdom of heaven, but here we get a clue as to the teaching ministry of Christ in the rest of the book. Notice, from that time, 
Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And they did not understand what He meant. Chapter 17, we see the second prediction of our Lord that He would do this. Notice in verses 22 and 23, as they were gathering in Galilee before they had set to go to Jerusalem for the Passover, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill Him, and He will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. These two prophecies had taken place over the span of a couple of months, but here in our text today, we see the urgency even further heightened. And as we've already mentioned, preparation is so important uh, as we were gathered together at the Marsh's house this last Thursday or Friday. I constantly have to remind myself, before we go, it's not appropriate for me to things as the father for me to just go to my child and say, okay, let's go. Grab him by the arm and take him out. I have to say, Charlotte, we have five minutes. Okay, five minutes, even though if that's actually 15 minutes, I have to say, we have five minutes. Prepare your mind. We're going to go. Jesus, in the love that he has for his apostles and his disciples, takes them aside here and tells them for a third time that he is going to do this. He will die at the hands of of men. Jesus' care is evident here, but we ought to see the urgency because of the timeline. We are no longer months away from the crucifixion. We are within two weeks of the crucifixion. Think about that with me. If you knew that you were going to die within the span of two weeks and probably closer to one week, what would be going through your mind is the most important thing for you to do? We see Christ here coming. And in chapter 21, the very next chapter here, we see him entering into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Five days before he's crucified. But in love, Jesus Christ takes his apostles aside. Aside from what, you might say? From the crowd they're traveling with going to the Passover where he would be crucified. Takes his twelve aside and explains to them what is going to happen in urgency and care and love, he does this. But I want us to notice the new information that we have. Each of these different warnings or predictions that Christ gives to the apostles is phrased in a slightly different way. But here, the theme that stands out before us so strongly is that the Gentiles would be involved. The Gentiles would be involved. It's not as if Jesus is merely going to die at the hands of the Jewish people. He's going to be handed over to the pagan nations and die. But there's another element that we see there. That He is going to be a delivered over man. He's going to be... I think it's helpful for us. Paradidomai is the Greek word here which is either translated delivered over, gave or betrayed. Jesus Christ is betrayed two times in this text by His people. First, we have the first layer of His betrayal where He is betrayed to the Jewish people. By whom? By His own community of disciples. 
And although all of them weren't involved, we know Judas Iscariot, possessed by the devil himself, betrays the Son of Man, the Son of God, into the hands of the sons of the devil. The Sanhedrin gathered around. But there's a second element of this betrayal, isn't there? He's betrayed by his own people. He came to his own people and they did not receive him. And more than that, they gave him up. When he was delivered to the Jewish people, the act that we see in verses 17 through 19 that the Jewish people took was to condemn him to death. A judicial sentence was passed down that he deserves to die because of who he claims to be, but it's the Gentiles who would have to execute that reality. The Jewish people would have been happy, I think, to kill the Son of God, but being in their own historical context with the Romans ruling over them, they were happy to deliver the Son of God, the Savior of Israel, over to the nations to be crucified, to be crucified. And this word deliver, this twofold deliverance of Jesus, really focuses our mind on this text. Jesus is delivered over by men. But he's also delivered over by the divine nature. Now, if we're to consider our text alone, verses 17 through 19, we see in this that Jesus Christ really is not doing anything. He is a passive recipient of what men are doing to him. He's going to Jerusalem, but once he gets there, he's going to be delivered over. Two times as a lamb led to the slaughter. And if we're left with that information alone, we might think in our minds or be tempted to think this is just a miscarriage of justice. That something terrible happened to an innocent man. But the rest of the Bible doesn't let us look on that so flatly. Because this same word, parodidomai, delivered over, betrayed, gave, is used of the Trinity. It's used of the Trinity. First, we see by God the Father that Jesus Christ was delivered over. Turn with me to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Jesus Christ is betrayed by men, but this is the plan of God from all eternity. God using the hands of sinful men, not compelling them to sin, but using their sin to accomplish His purpose. Notice Romans 4 where this same word is used. Verse 23, But the words, it was counted to Him, that is righteousness to Abraham, were not written for our sake alone, or for His sake alone, but for ours also. Notice, it will be counted to us who believe in Him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Do you see the the wonderful interpretation that we have in Scripture? We're not left with a, a bare historical reality that we have to come up with the interpretation to. But rather, we're told that God the Father delivered His own Son, not because of His sins, but because of yours. And we are justified by that reality. If you'll, in Romans, turn with me to chapter 8, where we see much the same thing. The wonderful end of chapter 8, starting in verses 31, we're going to read to only verse 32. 
Paul, concluding his argument of how strong the Gospel is, he says, what then shall we say to these things? What's the conclusion of the matter? If God is for us, who can be against us? Notice how he shows that God is for us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave, delivered up, parodidomai, gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The Father delivered up his own Son, and he is involved in this act of deliverance that Jesus Christ is talking about in 17 through 19. And we, unlike the disciples at the time, get this wonderful interpretation of this reality. But it goes deeper than that because we might be tempted. Well, if the Father delivered up his Son and men delivered up his Son, was the Son an unwilling participant in this? Was he really like a lamb led to the slaughter that has no option, no choice, but is merely grabbed, tied up, and taken to the slaughterhouse. The Word of God tells us that Jesus Himself gave Himself up. And we can go to many, many texts here, but we're going to go to only a couple. Galatians 2.20. I'm just going to read this. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Notice this. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave, parodidomai, delivered Himself for me. He was a willing participant in this. We know that Jesus, when He delivered Himself up, He even said to His disciples, don't you know I can call 12 legions of angels down right now to deliver me? But He wasn't passive in the sense that He was without strength to defend himself, but he was delivering himself over. Not resisting, but putting himself under the deliverance so that the wrath of God might come upon the Son of God for us. For us. And maybe just in passing, we see another example that's so strong in Ephesians 5 that Christ loved His church and gave Himself up for her. Same word, is used here. And so I I just think that when we read this text and we try to consider all the Bible says about the Son of God being delivered up to condemnation and death, we have to see it was a human action, but it was also divine. It was also divine. Behold the love of God in this passage, brothers and sisters. When we consider the love or the action of men in this text, It is the most vile and hateful act that's ever been perpetrated on the face of this earth. But in the hands of God, controlling and governing these acts, it's the most loving and gracious act that has ever been accomplished on this earth. Jesus willingly gives Himself up. And this physical deliverance of Christ points us to the greater divine deliverance of Jesus to condemnation for our sake. But... I want us to see something as well. If the physical deliverance of Jesus points to this greater divine deliverance, His physical suffering points to a greater spiritual reality. Now, we've seen in verses 17-19 through what Jesus is going to suffer at the hands of men, but now we have a switch in our scene, don't we? Christ uses 
the disciples' misunderstanding and sinful ambition to expose even a greater degree of His spiritual suffering. Notice with me, right after Jesus gives this extremely weighty warning about what is going to happen, immediately after that, to see the disciples' total cluelessness, we see, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to Him with their sons kneeling before Him, and they asked Him for something. We want to sit at your right hand and your left in your kingdom. Now, we might ask, what's going on here? Did they even hear the words that were spoken? I think that they heard the words with their ears. There was vibration in the air that went into their eardrums. But we see in Luke 18.34, it's a parallel passage, they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. And that's so evident in our passage, isn't it? It seems as if the disciples are still totally wrapped up in the common Jewish notion of the time that the the Messiah would come to this earth and He would triumph one thing after another, have victory over victory until He was coronated on His kingdom. They had a theology of glory. In fact, it seems from this text that they so thought this way that they thought their travel to Jerusalem for the Passover seems like they thought Jesus was going to be coronated as king when he went to Jerusalem. Their sinful hearts, wanting the top place of authority, think in their minds, we're going to Jerusalem, Jesus is going to receive the kingdom from his mother, so we better act quick. Let's get in there right now. Let's even bring our mother along so we can leverage Jesus to try to get him to say that we're going to be the top dogs in the kingdom of heaven. They bid for a position of authority that they think is imminently coming. But Jesus uses this ignorance to correct his disciples, to expose them. Now, I want us to notice that Jesus does this in such love, doesn't he? Instead of just being exasperated like I would be for sure, and just giving up on these people, He calmly, patiently, yet firmly tells them of their ignorance. And He does that plainly first, doesn't He? He says, you do not know what you're asking. You do not have the foggiest idea what's about to happen, what's going to take place, and what that means for you. But then He goes to say something far more mysterious to us. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? This answers the question in some way. But we have to understand what's meant by the cup. We have to understand what's meant by the cup. In Mark 10, which is a parallel passage to this, we get a little further glimpse into what Christ said. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am to be baptized. Jesus uses sacramental language that we're used to in the Christian culture to say, you're going to drink of a cup and be baptized. And Luke even repeats his baptismal language. In 1250, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Before the Son sits on His throne... Before he is truly coronated as king of the universe, 
he is going to have to drink a cup. And the disciples think that they're able to do the same thing that Jesus is doing here. But we have to ask, what does Jesus Christ mean that he has to drink of a cup? Now, it's certainly true that the cup, in part, signifies suffering. It signifies suffering. But a lot of commentators will say that it it merely signifies an earthly suffering on this earth. Persecution from fellow men. But if we read our Bibles with fullness, and I think we know already this morning, the cup means much more than just persecution from the world. We get a glimpse of this if you'll turn with me to Matthew 26. Matthew 26 What a wonderful passage. And I'll bring it up now, even though it's probably too early. Just excited about it. It, The next time we read the words cup and drink in Matthew, it's at the institution of the Lord's Supper, where James and John do truly drink of a cup that the Lord gives them. But we have another cup in Matthew 26. In verses 37 through 39, notice with me. I'll read verse 36 as well. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And He said to His disciples, Sit here while I go over and pray. And taking with them Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. Isn't that interesting? These two men. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then He said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with Me. And going a little farther, He fell on His face and prayed, saying, Father, If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. If this cup was merely suffering and persecution from this world, Jesus Christ would have been in this state of anxiety his entire life. But there's something peculiar going on here. Something deeper than meets the eye. And this is exposed to us in the Old Testament. Now, there are so many texts that we could go to, it would be overwhelming, but I think Jeremiah 25, as Brother Joey read to us this morning, is probably the clearest text that we have. As the prophet is told to take a cup and make all the nations of the earth drink of it. And what is the cup? It's the wrath of God for breaking the eternal covenant. We see the same thing in Isaiah 51, where the cup is represented as the wrath of God that all of humanity will drink down its dregs. The wrath of God coming on a wicked people. Same thing as in Ezekiel chapter 23 that we read in Jeremiah 25 this morning. But I think some of the clearest texts are actually in the book of Revelation. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 14. Echoing all of this Old Testament language, John the Revelator writes about the coming judgment on the earth. And he uses the language of the cup of God's wrath. Chapter 14. Notice verses 9 and 10. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, 
and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. What does the cup represent? It's God's wrath, but not just physically, not just temporal punishment. God's wrath even represents the eternal punishment that the whole world will suffer. Everybody that dies without Christ as their mediator and their covenant head drinks this cup. Chapter 16 of Revelation says much the same thing. 16 and just verse 19. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of His wrath. The cup that Jesus Christ is talking about in this text is what He does for us. He will take that cup willingly and drink it down. He will take God's anger and wrath upon Himself. Well, What about the language of baptism that we see in parallel texts? Or if you have a King James or a New King James Version, it's included in Matthew. That there's a baptism with which He is to be baptized with. Well, similar to the cup, we have to try to consider what it means for Jesus to be baptized. Now, again, just as there's two cups, we have to realize that there are two kinds of baptism that are offered up in the Scripture. Jesus, in Luke 12, and in this point, has already been water baptized, hasn't He? He's not talking about that. can't be talking about that. The apostles themselves have been water baptized at this point in John's baptism. So, What are we talking about here? Well, it must be something different than Matthew 3. But I want to propose the same thing that we have considered already, that the cup represents covenant judgment coming from the Creator of the world upon sinners. So baptism represents that. The waters of judgment, covenant judgment, is part of what baptism represents here. And if we think typologically for a minute, where do we see waters covering something in judgment? Well, don't we see that in the flood? The world was baptized in a certain way, immersed under the waters of the flood, but it was a judgment to the people, wasn't it? But it was salvation to Noah and his family. They were in the ark. And in that water of baptism, they were saved while the whole world was condemned. Likewise, with Pharaoh and his army, the enemies of God, they, Israelites, passed through the Red Sea as on dry ground, and 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that they were baptized into Moses at that moment. But when they got through the other side, the waters closed in, immersed, and baptized Pharaoh's armies, killing them. Covenant judgment is what is mentioned here. But also, Noah, or Jonah, I'm sorry. Jonah, as he's on that boat, and God's anger is coming against the seafarers that are on that boat, and Jonah, as he's there, they can't row to the shore because God's against them. Jonah says, cast me into the sea. And the waters ceased. That baptism of Jonah was death, I think, to Jonah. 
and represented as death, even as Christ says, he's the better Jonah. But salvation to those seafaring men. Salvation to those seafaring men. But if we look even towards the end of time, the judgment, we have baptism language. Not only will all the wicked who forsake Christ take the cup of God's wrath, they will be thrown and baptized into a lake of fire and brimstone. Throughout the Scriptures, baptism, judgment is being conferred here. And the point of this text is that Jesus did this for us. Jesus did this for us. There is a dual representation for us when we look at the Lord's Supper and at baptism. It represents salvation to us, but only because Christ took the covenant curse upon Himself. Jesus Christ was buried, baptized, suffered judgment. He drank the cup of God's wrath. His body was broken for us. We deserve all of us, to be delivered over by God to the judgment of God. We deserve to take the cup of God's wrath and drink it down to its dregs. We deserve to be drowned in the waters of judgment. When we see this picture and somebody goes down to the water, we should be thinking, I deserve to be held there and not raised up again. Jesus was baptized with the baptism that we should have been baptized with. And Jesus tells us He did this all for us. Did you notice that? Um, This is next week. But at the end of our paragraph, in verse 28, Jesus gives a further description. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give His life a ransom for many. Jesus Christ really was made sin for us. When we read in the Psalms, in Messianic Psalms, my sins are more than the hairs of my head that cannot be numbered. It shouldn't bother us because He really, when He took your sins, said they're my sins. And He was punished for them. Covenant curse came upon Him. He really owned our sin. He endured all the due suffering of the curse. He was cut off from the land of the living represented in baptism, and suffered as represented by the cup. So, Christ is trying to warn His disciples He's going to leave the earth, preparing us for what is going to happen. And the the root of us living the Christian life, just as the disciples, is to know intimately what Jesus Christ did for us. He served us Completely by taking all of the curse upon Himself for our sake. But Christian service is also rooted with union with Christ. And I, I, I really hope and pray this is making sense to you. Not only do we have to know what Jesus did for us, but that we're united with Him in all of His action. We're united with Him in His death and resurrection. Now just consider again the disciples coming to Jesus with all of this in the back of our minds. And they think what they need to do to achieve glory is to carve out for themselves a little piece of the kingdom. 
to be ambitious enough and daring enough to do something to show Jesus that they deserve this place. Okay? They're trying to leverage a position of prestige, and they even claim the ability to do a work in order to accomplish it. We can drink this cup just as you do, Jesus. In short, these men, they thought their Savior's path to glory was victory, right? A path of glory, victory to victory, and not crucifixion and resurrection. And that informed how they acted in their own life. If we think that our Savior went from victory to victory to glory, we're going to behave the same way and think that we are going to do something to achieve God's blessing for us. These men thought the path to glory was victory, but the correction that Jesus gives them is that He's going to do it for us. And in the institution of the Lord's Supper, He reminds them, you do partake of the cup that I drank down, but you don't partake of it in judgment like I did. This cup of judgment represented in the Old Testament becomes a cup of salvation to you because Jesus drank it all down. It represents a promise to you. That's what the Lord's Supper is, by the way. It's not something you do. It's something God promises through it. He says, I've broken my body. I've spilled my blood. Now receive by faith that this has taken place. Receive by faith this has taken place. And baptism, likewise, is a physical sign, again, of God's promise that Jesus was cut off from the land of the living. He was buried in baptism. And it's a promise to us. Again, baptism is not primarily something you do to show other people your profession of faith. Baptism is God's promise to us that He has done this. And again, we receive it by faith. I believe that just as water washes away dirt from the body, I believe that my soul has been cleansed by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It signifies baptism, the death and resurrection of Jesus, and confirms to us, seals to us, that if we have faith in what He did and what He has done in His death, His resurrection becomes our resurrection, and His death becomes ours. And a text that we all know well, I'm sure, is Romans chapter 6, that shows this unity in the sign And the thing signified, the sign is merely water, but it signifies something. It signifies Christ. Verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that Jesus, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In a way, we could say we were judged in the waters of baptism, but it was our old man. And coming out is the new creation. Just as there was the waters of the new creation in Genesis 1, so baptism represents not just judgment, but resurrection and new creation as well. And this is how Christ corrects these two brothers. Glory and honor in the kingdom of God do not come through our own manipulation, 
through our own work, through our own avarice or greed, but only through the union that we have with our mediator who took judgment for us and transformed symbols of judgment to symbols of great blessing. We're united in his death and resurrection, brothers and sisters. But that doesn't totally answer the question what he meant. You will take the cup. Because there is suffering involved. Because we're united to Christ. We not only partake of his death and resurrection, we suffer with him. That is, the path of our life follows the pattern of the path that Jesus' life followed. Because we are one with Jesus, our Christian lives are patterned after His. Just as He suffered humbly before being exalted to the right hand of the Father, the pattern of the Christian life is not glory to glory. It's suffering, death, and then glory on the final day. So, We must confess that while James and John did partake of the free grace of God in receiving that Christ was condemned for them by taking the cup, it also means that they were going to be persecuted, hated by the world because they hate Jesus. Our union with Him conveys that reality as well. We see this, don't we, in the history of the church. In Acts 12, we see about that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And he saw it please the Jews, and he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. We see the Apostle John not dying a martyrdom death, but dying in prison on the island of Patmos. And if we take church history and uh, tradition to be anything, see that we have tales of him being boiled in water and tortured severely. He partook of the suffering of Jesus Christ because He's in union with Him. And if we are united to Christ by faith, brothers and sisters, we will suffer with Him. In conclude, I just want us to look at Romans chapter 8. In verses 16-17. through 17. Notice how Paul, in this text, takes the concept and the reality that we're united with Christ to explain our glory, our salvation, and our suffering together. The Spirit Himself in Romans 8.16 bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Notice, Provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. There is an order to the glorification and the salvation of the church. And it's suffering with Christ and then glory with Christ. And so Jesus is preparing His disciples and His for this by showing them the depths of service that Jesus did for His church that we might understand that it's only being united to Him that we can have salvation and blessing. And it's only through knowing that we follow His path to glory that we can willingly suffer for His sake, knowing that glory is coming. So in conclusion today, we look to the cup 
that is set before us that we take every week, and I hope maybe with new eyes to see what it means. This is a promise of God given to us that Jesus took the cup in your place that you might partake of what He's done. His body was broken for you and shed for you. This is a visible promise. We have heard auditory promises today given to us that you receive by faith. You're asked to receive the visible Word by faith. Rest in Him and know that He took the cup for you and you are united to Him. His death is your death. His life is your life. Brother.